If you have your Bibles, take them to Mark chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11 is our young people will go to Children's Chapel this morning. And we praise the Lord for those that work in Children's Chapel. Mark chapter number 11 and verse number 11. If you would please stand out of honor and reverence to God's Word. We have started a series last week in which we will look at the days of Jesus' passion leading up to Resurrection Sunday and Easter. I want to take a look at the days of Jesus' passion. And the word passion is in the book of Acts, actually. Acts chapter 1, verse number 2 references the days of Jesus, uh, the week leading up to his, his resurrection. That week is days of his suffering. That's what that passion means, suffering. So we're looking at these days. And today I want us to look at a day of investigation. A day of investigation. Mark chapter number 11 in verse number 11. We'll read down through verse number 20. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, and now the evening time was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. That marks the end of day one. If you'll remember last week, he come in and that triumphal entry as king of Jerusalem, the hallelujahs that were given, uh, the, the hosannas that were given, the palms and the clothing that was spread along the path, that that ended that day. Now we pick up in day of the second day, the next day in verse 12. And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of leagues, figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto him, It no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is, not, is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of... Of all, uh, of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Notice verse number 20, And in the morning as they passed by, they saw... The fig tree dried up from the roots. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Like I said, day two, a day of investigation. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name asking your blessing upon your word. God, your Bible is open. You have something to say to your people. I pray you breathe upon us this morning. May the word of God abound towards us this day. May the Holy Spirit give understanding. May, may the hearts and lives be revealed of the listener. May the lost in this room who may have a leafy appearance of being religious be shown for what they are. They have not the spirit life that is imparted by faith in Jesus Christ. May we this morning that may be 
going through religious motion be discovered for our sin and our, our, the crowding out of God in our life. And may we come to grips with that and make things right. God, do your work this morning. Do the mystery of preaching. When you take God's word and you speak to the human need, you speak to hearts this morning in a, very, a varied and wide range of ways. God will give you glory for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. A 17-year-old high school student, in order to graduate, had to write an essay on a religious subject. He chose the subject of the union of believers with Christ, according to the Gospel of John. Let me share with you just a portion of what he wrote. Our heart, reason, history, And the work of Christ convince us that without Him we are doomed by God and only Christ can save us. Man, I do cartwheels. One of of our teenagers, 17-year-olds, wrote something like that. It's very insightful, very thoughtful of the union of the believer with the Lord Jesus. These thoughts come from a 17-year-old and reveal a great spiritual wisdom beyond his own age. They are words from one that had been baptized at the age of six into the Lutheran church, had been confirmed at age 16, and the young man's name was none other than Karl Marx. Just nine years after writing these words, He abandoned any Christian commitment that he had had at one time. He would go on to become one of the most world's most influential atheists in history. His ideas, uh, uh, his ideas would spawn a, a thought of the Soviet Union and the communist government and their great epics of of death and misery in human history. What appeared to be in this 17-year-old man was not the reality within the heart. He may have looked like in every appearance and what he wrote and what he said and what he had portrayed himself to be one thing and was found to be something completely different. On the outside, uh, he may have looked like a 17-year-old boy that might uh, uh, that one might thought to have all the markings of a faithful Christian, maybe of even a minister or or a an educator, but the investigation of divine eyes knew that in truth that all the outward religious garments are no replacement for true inward spiritual reality. You see, God knew the deceptive nature of Karl Marx's heart. And yet not readily, it was not readily announced to the whole world. God knew what was in Karl Marx when he penned those words. But he didn't let the whole world know of that true nature. Yet that was, well, that was what happened on the second day of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. He begins to take and pull back the leaves pull back the facade of religion to show the true true reality of these people's faith. Jesus came into the very heart of the Hebrew religious world and performed an investigation into the reality of their faith. What he found revealed a stark contrast between an outward show of religious form 
and an inward substance of real faith. You see, to us that look on these days events some 2,000 years later, there is a glaring question for every one of us this morning. If Jesus were to walk in today as He did in Jerusalem, and He were to take His divine eyes and look at the lives of our hearts this morning, if we looked at each individual here this morning, would He uh, see, and if, and if He were perform an investigation, would He find form or would He find fruit? Would He find trappings or window dressings or would He find truth? Would He find deception or would He find devotion? This is beyond what your preacher can see. This is beyond what I can discern from a conversation after church. What would Jesus see in your heart and life if He were to do the same thing as He did this morning in Jerusalem? Every one of us can know what Jesus would find upon an investigation of our lives by looking closely at two portions of this day. Obviously, when you look at this day and what Jesus did, it divides itself into two parts. We'll look at those two parts this morning. Number one, I want you to see that we find in this day, in the first part, the meaning of the cursed tree. Now the day started with Jesus returning into Bethany, uh, turning into a front, uh, returning into the city of Bethany. Now Bethany was a place of it was a place of resorting. I told you over a year ago why we chose the name of Bethany for this church when we reestablished it because it was a place of retreat. It was a place of of fellowship. It was a place of rest where Jesus felt it. Oh, he retreated into this place, a place of safety, a place of relaxation. And as he walked back into the city, there is this curious story of the fig tree. A fig tree that had all the markings of having fruit, yet none was found on it. Several years ago, I was talking to an individual about this very day in the Gospel of Mark. And I was telling him what was going on. Jesus came in that day. He went to the fig tree, saw it didn't have fruit. He cursed the fig tree. Then He went into the temple and He began to run all the money changers out and, and, and cleanse the temple and that day. And the, the, the person commented back, man, it sounds like Jesus is just having a bad day. You know, you ever had a bad day? Where things just didn't go your way? The fig tree didn't have no fruit. Everybody's, doing, everybody's acting crazy down at the church. It would maybe seem like from the outside this was just a bad day. And I have to admit from an initial reading this may look like that, but it is not. Everything that Jesus did was packed with significance, with meaning. He didn't throw away an instance in life. He didn't throw away any action before His disciples. Every recorded word of what Jesus did bears a, a, a note of authenticity from the divine God for you to hear. Not just to cast aside and say Jesus was just having a bad day. And when we look at this fig tree a little closer, I believe we see a lesson 
that's readily apparent. Notice, first of all, in the meaning of this cursed fig tree, I want you to see an appearance of spiritual growth. Now, before we dive into the meaning of the text, I just want to make brief comment. It's something the Holy Spirit put in verse number 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. It may be easily overlooked. You may run past it in a cursory reading, but I want you to understand something. From those words, the Holy Spirit of God is saying to us, revealing that Jesus is just like you in His humanity. He is just like me, except without sin. He was perfect in all points, tempted in all points, yet without sin. But Jesus knew what it was, hunger. I mean, think about it. Here's the man that took five, a small lunch of five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 people, and yet he's hungry in this moment. Here is a man uh, that, could, uh, that could easily have caused the tree to suddenly burst with fruit, and yet he is hungry. Here is a man that told the world to come, all men to come unto him and find drink, and yet on the cross we find him thirsty. Here is a man uh, that is the rock of ages who beckons all men to come, all that are weary and heavy laden to rest on him. And yet time and time again, we find him weary in his ministry. Jesus was the God man. He was one of us that he might die for us. In these brief words that the Holy Spirit gives us, we see the humanity of the Lord Jesus. But notice, Notice what Jesus does. He goes over to this tree expecting to find fruit to satisfy his hunger. And Mark tells us that it was not the time of year for the fruit. Now I'm thinking, like, what gives here? Jesus, you know the time fruit's there. Jesus, you know uh, that, that this is not the season for fruit. And uh, usually the fruit will come many weeks later. It will come in the late April and early May. Those figs will burst forth and bring forth fruit. So Jesus, what gives here? Well, there's insight, and uh, Dr. Ivor Powell notes this in his commentary on Matthew. He said that in eastern countries, the fig trees would often, the figs would often appear uh, in moments before the leaves would appear. So get this. When the figs would appear, they would come forth first and then the leaves. So if you were to see a fig tree filled with luscious leaves, then you could make the deduction that there's going to be fruit on it. It was an unusual situation because Mark goes out of his way to say there was much, there was a lot of leaves on the tree. It had every indication from outward appearance that there was fruit on the inside. And so we look at this tree. It's got plenty plenty of leaves. It's quite easily to expect that there be fruit. And yet there was none. It had everything outwardly to indicate that it had spiritual or it had growth. It had fruit. It had substance to it, and yet there was nothing on the inside. This is an object lesson. Jesus knew there was no fruit. He could have walked right past it if it was just about getting something to eat. One glance, or even he knew back in Bethany there was no fruit on the tree. Why the inspection? He's teaching a lesson. 
Israel in the Old Testament oftentimes is referred to as a fig tree. God's fig tree that produces fruit. Here Jesus is giving the illustration that Israel has all the trappings on the outside to make it look religious, to make it look like it's bearing fruit, that it has life to it. But one peek under the leaves reveals there's nothing on the inside. There is no spiritual Grove. Here is a fig tree outwardly indicating and yet there is no satisfying fruit. This is the case with many, not in Israel, but in the church today. You may have all the trappings of looking as though you know Christ. All the trappings of good deeds and, and, and I'll, I'll go through the routine and you're at church every time and I, I bless God for that. I thank God for that. But do you have real life? Is there real spiritual growth on the inside? You see, you may be here and have every, you may look like you have all your ducks in a row. You may look like you have got God by the tail and you've got every kind of Bible study and every kind of Bible and and every kind of good deed and you're, you're doing every little thing in the church that you want to do or that you'd like to do. And, but the reality is there's no spiritual growth within. I remember when I was nine years old. From the time I was nine year old, years old to the time I was 21 years old, I knew how to act. I knew what to say. I knew how to sit on the front row of the Sunday school. I knew what to say to make mom and dad think. I was on the up and up. I knew how to play the part and play the role and sit straight, straight in church. But the reality is I had no life inside me. One cursory view of Jesus coming and lifting up the leaves would find there's no fruit. There's no life on the inside. Here we see an appearance of spiritual growth, but also the absence of spiritual fruit. The true life of a tree within will be manifest in the fruit that it bears. If a tree is... Uh, It has true life. It's going to bear fruit. The Bible is clear that the evidence of true salvation is uh, is having spiritual fruit. Of having spiritual uh, fruit in 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 Jesus uh, Jesus Christ the uh, the real the reality of that Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. A lot of people go around saying, "Don't you judge me?" You know, don't you read the Bible preacher and the Bible Jesus says, "Don't you judge me? You can't judge me." And to a certain extent, they're right. I can't judge their motivations. I can't judge their decision making. I can't judge their minds. But I can judge their fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And so I see the fruit of an outward life. I can make a natural deduction. Jesus said of the false prophet, you shall know them by their fruits. What they do, what they say, what they produce in their life of real spiritual significance. You'll know them by their fruits. I can inspect fruit. And if if it is not a consistent fruit of true faith in Jesus Christ, I can make a judgment. As my pastor said in one of his messages, you may have the leaves of religion and yet not have the fruit of salvation. 
Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom uh, of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, uh, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, listen, if your life is characterized by this kind of life, fornication, drunkenness, homosexuality, lying, stealing, coveting, when your life is characterized by that, we can obviously deduce that this is the fruit of what's inside you. And what's inside you is the only thing that counts. Not what you do on the outside. A fruit inspection. No, uh, if, you, if your life, no matter how religious you may be, produces in a consistent manner the works of the flesh, you have every reason to believe that there is no spiritual life within you. But, but, if your life produces a desire for God, a desire for obedience to God, I'm telling you, that is contrary to man's nature. That just doesn't pop up in a lost person to want to obey God. To want to follow God. To want to do what God says. To want to, uh, to do what God says. To want to know what God says. They just don't strike somebody sitting on a bar stool. This is the work of God. And if we have that fruit, if we have that desire, then we can know from that fruit we are saved. If, you, if your life can be characterized by the outline of Galatians 5, 22 verse 23, but, of the fruit of the, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, I'm telling you there is some suggestion that what that fruit is tells us what's on the inside. There's a myriad of other tests. I just pull those out uh, for our examination. You won't further go to 1 John. Read 1 John. He writes these things that we may know that we are the sons of God. That we may know that we have eternal life. He wants us to know. That's one of the things that kills me. A lot of people, oh, I don't think you can ever, I don't think you can ever know that you're saved. 1 John tells us. I write this that you may know. He doesn't want you to walk, live, or live your life wondering whether you're saved or not. Living in that lack of confidence, the appearance of spiritual growth, the absence of spiritual fruit. Notice lastly, most frighteningly, the announcement of spiritual death. Look at verse number 14. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard and they come in the next day, and in verse number 20, uh, Peter notices the tree, and it dried up from the roots. In one day's time, it was dead, withered up. The life, the, or the lack of life, the death on the inside was manifest on the outside. Jesus' response to this deceptive, fruitless tree was an announcement in verse 14. Nobody eat fruit from you in the future. Matthew 21 and verse 19, a parallel passage says, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Let us be clear with what Jesus is showing us here. 
If there is no fruit resulting from life within the tree, then the only other thing that can occupy what's in is death. It's either life or death. Either you have life within you, a belief and trust in Jesus Christ, or you have death only. Scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2.1 that, that outside of Jesus Christ we are dead in trespasses and sin. That's why a lost sinner can't come into the church and work his fingernails to the bone and do everything he possibly can in religious form and it does him no good why he's a dead man. He's dead. There's no life within. Here we see that the result of that is a curse, a condemnation. 1 Timothy 5, 6. Uh, uh, Paul is telling young Timothy, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. You may be physically alive, but you are a dead man walking. This death was eventually manifest before the world. Peter saw it the next day. You couldn't see the death on the first day. I mean, I'm sure the disciples were as surprised as Jesus was. There's no fruit on this tree. It has every appearance of having life. But yet a day later, everybody saw the death. I'm telling you this morning, if there is no real fruit, if there is no genuine fruit in Jesus Christ, then there will be a day that that death within will be manifest for all to see. Jesus uh, spoke of these folks that have, uh, that, are, uh, that have a profession but no possession. Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied? Look at my leaves. I prophesied. Uh, have I not prophesied in thy name? Have I not cast out devils? Look at the devils I've cast out. Look at these leaves here. And what did Jesus respond with? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Ye that what? A work, a work iniquity. There's the fruit. That's what's been coming out on the limbs. Iniquity. Whether it's the subtle, whether it's the blatant iniquity of fornication and rebellion against God, or whether it's the subtle fruit of pride and greed and the secret fruit of lust. Whether it be the outward manifest or the inward, uh, uh, inward attitudes, it is the same. It is death. There, they may have all the leaves that look like life, but inwardly there is a lack of true faith and reveals spiritual deadness within. Oh, God forbid. God forbid anyone in this room be a tree with a whole lot of leaves. A whole lot of... Of outward, of outward doings and deeds and there's no life inside. You're trying to impress the preacher. You're trying to impress your spouse. You're trying to impress your family. You're trying to straighten up your own life. I'm telling you, there's deadness in that. Life is in Jesus and in Him alone. Notice second of all, we not only see the meaning of the cursed tree, but the message of the cleansed temple. Look back with me at verse number 11. Jesus entered into the Jerusalem. This goes back another day. Jesus entered into the, uh, into the Jerusalem and into the temple when He had looked round uh, about upon all things and now the evening time was coming. He went out into Bethany with the twelve. Jesus the night before had gone into the temple 
and saw the very same thing that he saw the next day. He ended the first day of his suffering entering the temple, walking around, looking at it. This was a visit that no doubt showed the same thing that it did the day before. We know from the text what would take place on the morrow. This was almost premeditated. I believe it was. Jesus went in there, saw what was going on, and then went home without a word. What a beautiful picture of what we saw in Revelation. I gave her a space to repent. One more day. One more day before he ransacks that temple. One more day to get things right. He gave one more day of respite. One more day of mercy. Jesus never acted impetuously and rashly. This wasn't, a, this wasn't an emotional fit by Jesus. This was a premeditated cleansing of God's temple. Here we see uh, that, uh, that, that, that this was premeditated. Jesus now approaches the temple the next day. Notice, first of all, we see a recognition of defilement. Look at verse 15. And he came to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple. What Jesus saw was not a holy place of the worship of God. He saw a bustling market of wares. This was a place that had distinguished itself above all other places in the earth. God said that I only will place my name there in that temple. On the day of Solomon's dedication, when the temple was complete, and after his prayer, fire came from heaven, consumed the offering, and the glory of God, filled the very presence of God, filled that temple insomuch that the priests could not minister for the presence of God in the place. This is a place where God lived, manifestly lived. It's a place where God was, was active and working. It was a place that was holy. It's a place that bare the name of God. And all the things that went on, His presence was there. We like to sing a song, Holy Ground. And I understand what that song means, but there is no holy ground like that holy ground. And what did they have turned it into? They had turned it into a bazaar. They had turned it into a flea market. This was the outer court of the Gentiles. And it was supposed to be a place as honored and respected and to be a place of prayer like any other place in the temple. But what do they find it encroaching in on that temple? Was all of this circus on the outside. Now, what was going on? Well, it was like a marketplace because notice Jesus says about the, or the text talks about these money chains. Exodus 30, verse 13 and 16 tells us that a half a shekel was to be given by every worshiper over the age of 20. So they're due. Now many of them come from thousands of miles away to journey to worship in this great day of the, of the Feast of the Passover and all that was going on. And so these people would come with money from their homeland. And it would be stamped with the pictures of idols and pictures of pagan kings. Well, that could not be used in the worship of God. They had to change out their money. And so what they'd do is they'd bring their money and they would come and the money changers, ah, oh, we've got your shekel. It's made without any idolatry. It's good to use in the temple. 
And so they would take their money, give it to them, and the exchange would be tilted. That's why he said a den of thieves. Tilted toward the money changer. It's kind of like going to Europe these days. Brother, I feel for you taking American funds and trying to go overseas. You'll, you'll, you'll be in a, hurt, in, a, in, a, in a hurry when you do that. The exchange rate is so poor. Well, these money changers were making money hand over fist through this necessity. Putting this burden on these people. They were losing money when they come in. Then there were animals everywhere. They, they would bring the animals for sacrifice. You see, here was the ploy. Men would bring their own lamb that they looked at and said, man, this thing is perfect, doesn't have a spot or blemish. They'd bring it in. They'd say, wait a minute now. Are you sure? Are you a priest to make sure your animal would not be rejected? You better get these priestly approved animals and just... Sell us yours. Well, they would give them the cheap price for their animal and they would sell them an expensive animal of the priestly approval. What a, what a, what a, what a game they got going on here. It was a money racket. And they were trading, all these animals were in that outer court. Uh, uh, all of them neighing and bang and, and, and uh, everything going on with the animals in the courtyard. The money changers and, and, and the, the city was filled with millions of people. Everybody's pressing in line. You've been to Six Flags or wherever they have the long lines and people bump each other. And it's a crowded place and, and no doubt fights and pushings uh, uh, insinuate. I mean, you think about the madness of this place. When it was supposed to be a place of worship. When it was supposed to be a place where God was encountered. And all Jesus found was defilement there. Defilement. You see, all of, and then there was foot traffic of the stable workers bringing water and food, the sounds of the animals, the shouts of the money changers, thousands standing in line in this sacred place of worship. It had become a circus. Notice, we see not only the recognition of the defilement, but the reaction of disgust. The reaction of disgust. Jesus reacted in righteous indignation. He was horrified that such uh, uh, things were happening in the place where His Father had placed His name. He was horrified at the disrespect that was going on in the house of God. This was sinful. This was slanderous. This was shameful what was taking place. The people had skirted the law, had, had neglected the, uh, the, the sacredness of this place, and had made it into their own little place of advantage. His love for God and His house welled up within Him, and He began to physically remove this blight from the house of God. Nobody had done something like this. Can you see Jesus taking people by the nap of the neck and throwing them out of the place? Uh, can you see Jesus taking the money changers and flipping the tables as, as uh, hucksters scramble on the ground to get the few coins that they're losing? Can you see Jesus kicking the animals and stirring them out and, and anybody carrying any kind of water or any kind of hay, spitting them out, scooting them out of God's house? It was a reaction that was unbelievable. Jesus acted in disgust towards what was going on. Although I believe that we can make an application pertaining to our worship facilities, I think it's a good cause to park right here for a second. This is not a jungle gym. 
This is not a place where uh, uh, people run up and down and scurry and play chase and climb walls and act like a act like a fool. This is not a place where we do horseplay around here. It's good for our young people to know this. It ought to be a place that's honored and revered. This is a place where we worship God. We take care of this place. You see a piece of paper on the floor? Pick it up. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. You see something that ought to be taken care of? You take care of it. This is God's house. And here we see, but the, the main application is, God moved His presence, His name from the temple. You do realize that, don't you? God's not there anymore. He doesn't reside there. His name's not there. Do you know where His name is now? In the hearts of believers. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? That you're not your own? You're bought with a price? Where is the residing place of God now? It's in the heart of people that believe upon Him. And if Jesus were to walk into our hearts and lives, what would He find? Would He find the den and racket of greed? Would He find the filth of lust? And greed. What would he? What would he find within our within our hearts? Would he turn the tables on all of our all of our well laid plans? Would he turn the? Uh, would he? Would he kick out all of our rebellions? Would he act in disgust at what is taking place in our hearts and lives? Because believe you me, God is more concerned or equally concerned about what's happening in that temple as much as what's happening in our hearts, in your life, in the reality of your spiritual life. There was a disgust in the Lord Jesus. When greed, lust, and pride begin to a foothold in our hearts, it is, it is not viewed like a small thing in the eyes of God. That's what they thought. Well, it's not a big deal. We're a little crowded for space here. We can just move this in the court of the Gentiles. Nobody cares about them old Gentile dogs. Let's, let's uh, uh, defecate all over their floor in there. Let's put hay everywhere. Let's shout and hoop and holler where they're trying to worship. Nobody cares about these old Gentiles. We'll just scoot it on in there. It's not a big deal. It's a little bit of encroachment. For the most part, I'm okay. God thought it was a big deal. Big enough deal for Jesus Christ to uh, to basically get righteous and indignant and run it out of there, chasing the worshipers uh, uh, of God. You see, Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. It's a prime candidate for God to come in and turn over tables and chase out sin. For Jesus to chasten and scourge our hearts this morning. Here we see a rebuke. Or we see a recognition of defilement, a reaction of disgust, a rebuke of displeasure. 17 and 18. And He taught saying them, is, is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, and ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus gives a startling rebuke. His response was that the house had been made one thing and you had turned it into something else. Something that it was never intended to be. We who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and bear the distinction of being the temple of God that has been sanctified, set apart for His honor and His glory and for His residence, it doesn't matter whether it's a building or a body. God takes no less of uh, God takes is no less pleased when our lives are defiled by sin and used for sinful practices than He did that day in the temple. God places just as much importance on our holiness as He did the holiness of that temple. When you go around your lives, nobody's going to care about what I listen to. 
Nobody's going to care about where I talk with my friends at school, how I text my friends, what I do on my text, what I do on my phone. Nobody cares. Just delete it out of history. It's done and gone. Nobody cares. If that's the temple of the Holy Ghost and those eyes are looking on unholy things, God cares about what's going on in there. He cares about what you do. He cares about what you think. He cares about what you say. And when you defile that temple, you are making yourself a prime candidate for the rebuke of the Lord. This may come as a rebuke to you this morning. Take it from the Lord Jesus, a rebuke towards God's people. I remember years ago, I got all sideways on God. Carrie knows the night it happened. I, I just weeks earlier, I'd gotten prideful in what I'd done. Nobody was patting me on the back. And nobody cared what I was doing. I got sideways on God. Why in the world am I doing what I'm doing and preaching and stuff? I just, I'm about ready to quit. I don't give a rip anymore. Nobody cares what's going on. Nobody really loves Jesus in this church except me. You know how that is. I'm sitting on that pew one night at a revival meeting. Didn't really want to go, but didn't want, to know, didn't want my wife to know that I didn't want to go. I'm sitting in there. Uh, pastor by the name of Wilbur Hurt mounted that pulpit. Buddy, he rang my bell. He read my title clear. And God turned over my tables that night. God showed me where I stood with him that night. God did a work in my heart of straightening out and chasing me in that seat. Carrie knows she's sitting next to me and, and felt me squirming the whole message. Jesus knows exactly what to say. He knows the right rebuke to bring into your life. To say whatever you're doing that's doing that's defiling my temple, it needs to stop now. Or the result will happen. Notice the result that took place. The result of departure. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 23. This is an additional statement of the Lord Jesus later on. But I think it has a direct impact on what we're learning about today. Matthew 23 and look at verse number 38. Go back to 37. Listen to what Jesus is saying. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are assent to thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her cheeks under her wing, and ye would not. Notice the next verse. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Listen to me very closely. God had his name on there. God had his presence in that life. God was doing things in that temple He wasn't doing anywhere else. And they began to defile and refuse and reject that God. And finally God said, that's not my house anymore. What did Jesus say? That's your house. That's your house. When we become more concerned about what we're doing for God instead of what God's doing through us, I'm telling you. When we're more concerned about what we're doing as a church instead of what God's doing in our church, when this becomes my church and my place and my house, God will say, I'll give it to you. If you want it, I'll give it to you. But you better kiss the power goodbye. The first one's about fruitfulness. Whether we're being fruitful. The second one is about the power of God. I left. I've gone. That's your house down there with all its marble and all of its gold and all of its Ark of the Covenant and the brazen altar. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. And we know what takes place. Titus comes in in 87, 70 AD and the place is leveled and it's never been brought back. If you want to have your own spiritual life for your own glory and you can give a care less about what God thinks about your temple of the Holy Ghost, before long you'll see the power gone. 
you'll lose grip on your spiritual wherewithal. There won't be growth anymore. All that peace, love, and joy will begin to be like scarce as hen's teeth. When we forsake God, He'll let, he'll let you do it. I've been there. He'll let you do what you want to do. But believe me, you'll pay the consequence in the absence of His hand, in the absence of His, of his power. I remember in the sixth grade uh, history class I was in, my teacher, just about every night or every other night, would assign a reading section in, the, in our history textbook. And he said, read ahead in this. We're going to go over it tomorrow in class. And that's what he did consistently. And I got the bright idea. Well, hey, I can look like I read the night before. I can shake my head yes and shake my head no at the right times. Why do I need to read what that's? I don't like reading. I don't want to read a history book. I want to watch cartoons. There's hope for Kayla Carey because I watched a lot of cartoons when I was a kid. I can watch cartoons and I'll get in class and I can look the part. Yeah, I know what, yeah, they said that thing. Until one day we come in. He said, take a piece of paper out of your notebook, take your books and put them under the desk. Number that page from one through ten. Let's have a pop quiz. Buddy, you talk about somebody that went pale as a sheet. I cared about my grades. I don't know why, but I really, you know, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to succeed. I didn't want to fail. I, didn't, I wasn't the type to say, I don't give a rip what, what this test does, man. It, it meant something to me. And you're talking about white as a sheet. It's pop quiz time. Listen, it's pop quiz time this morning. Jesus is coming through and he's pulling back the leaves. He's looking for fruit. Do you have any? Pop quiz. Jesus is invading the temple of our hearts this morning by this text. Is he finding a place filled with fear? Filled with apathy? Filled with a distance, a lack of faith, a distance from God? Is he finding a heart that is uh, a heart that is so foreign and distant that you don't know if you're saved or not this moment? What's he finding in that temple this morning? Pop quiz time. Jesus is looking. Nobody expected a test in the last week of His suffering. Jesus is suffering when He looks into this tree. He looks into His beloved Israel and there's no fruit, only pretense. He looks into His beloved temple and there's nothing that what, it's all, that what should be there. It's defiled. It's, it's, it's thought less of. It's trampled underfoot. And it should be honored and revered as a place of God's sanctification. God set it apart. Pop quiz this morning. This is a day of investigation. Would you pass the test? Let's all stand to our feet as we come to our invitation. Time. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking in this room this morning. Gut check time. Pop quiz. Do you have fruit? If Jesus were to take all the religious trappings and leaves and pull them aside, is there any real fruit? Is there any real fruit of peace, joy, love? Is there any desire for following God? Any desire for obedience? Any desire for the worship of God? Any desire to surrender all to the one that gave His all on the cross for us? Is there any love for Jesus? Is there any desire to be obedient to Him? To walk in His footsteps? To follow after Him? To obey Him in the Gospel? To carry the Great Commission? To live the Great Commandment? Is the fruit there?
Or is there simply, simply a semblance on the outside that looks really religious and you've got the world fooled? What about your heart this morning? God cares about your heart. Don't live, don't live that hypocritical Christian life. We're going to talk about that tonight in the Sermon on the Mount, the life of that hypocrite who professes to be one thing on the outside but something entirely different on the inside. Maybe you'd like to make things right with Jesus. Maybe you'd like to, number one, be saved today. Be born again. Come trust the Lord Jesus as, as Lord and Savior tonight. If there's no fruit there, come believe upon Him. Let God put life into you. Be, be passed from death unto life by belief in Jesus Christ. If you're here and your heart is defiled, you're walking in a, a far distance from Jesus, make things right today. Confess your sins and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse. Confess your sins, make them right. Jesus will forgive your sin. Come, make it right. Make a new start today. Come to Him. Dear Heavenly Father, we love You. And I pray You'd speak to hearts in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Take your red hymnal, page number 366. I surrender all. I surrender all, 366. Why don't you come? I'll meet you with the Bible. Show you how you can know you can be saved today. We can make things right with Jesus today. Do that. I surrender all.